Welcome to Over in Smith, an H.P. Lovecraft podcast where we read the complete works of H.P. Lovecraft. We usually do a audiobook if the story isn't too boring or racist or both. Uh, we're going to be reading the fourth and final part of The Dreams in the Witch House. And with me just today is somebody who keeps like getting dragged around the dream world by some old lady, uh, Art. Hi, I'm not doing an audiobook for this one, by the way. <laughs> I just want to get that out of the way. I'm not. <laughs> uh, not to not to spoil uh the HP Listcraft at the end of this. It's not going high. <laughs> How could you? Now that People being were- said, it might be more fun visually. Like, I don't doubt that like uh, Guillermo de Toro can't like make something fun out of this. But like reading it is a fucking slog. Oh, <laughs> certainly. I think I think it would be paced better, and I feel like the visuals would be easier if they're in a a movie instead of or a, a different piece of media than as yeah. writing. Yeah, it doesn't work. But that being said, we'll discuss it more later. Yes. Um, yeah. But uh. But yeah. The what happened last time, Faith? Was it barely anything? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't like basically the main character got dragged around in his dreams some more by Kazaya. He had another day where he was uh, being pulled in a certain direction. He, yeah, and then finally, like old Kazaya took him to some place with Nyarlathotep and they went into, it was like almost like a shop in like a back alley somewhere and then she came out and handed him something and then he immediately woke up because he was so scared. Uh, okay, so uh, my my soundboard slash, my soundboard updated and (gasps) apparently I have a a wild animal's uh Sound tab now, so oh my maybe god, heard this. yeah, you probably <laughs> heard that. It's brown Jakin, yeah, that's that's how brown Jakin sounds, yeah, it sounds like that. And maybe he needs to listen to this. I don't know, this is a flow five vibes <laughs> thing. <laughs> that's also brown Jakin with a tiny guitar. <laughs> Yeah. It's <laughs> just a tiny, tiny little rat-sized guitar. <laughs> but, but yeah. Oh, prankster. Oh, I, I use prankster a lot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, this was, this was, uh, the, the dude who likes math, how he felt when he woke up. This is what his uh, neighbors hear when he's walking around. (laughs) Jesus. Uh, Like, uh, the only good part of this is the fact that, realistically, he got pulled somewhere he's never been before, and then he just stood outside while old Kazaya took care of everything, like, really awkwardly. It's like... It's like when you go out with your mom shopping and she meets somebody there and talks to them for, like, way too long and you're just standing there awkwardly the whole time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's where we left off was old Kazaya handing the main character something furry and then he was like, ah! 
and woke and woke up just like that. <sighs> yeah. Shall we shall we get this this party ended? We're at the end of this man's uh, possibly very elaborate, very strange sex dream. The Dreams in the Witch House, Part 4. On the morning of the 29th, Gilman awaked to a maelstrom of horror. The instant he opened his eyes, he knew something was terribly wrong. For he was back in his old garret room with the slanting wall and ceiling, sprawled on the now unmade bed. His throat was aching inexplicably as he struggled to a sitting position. And as he struggled to a sitting posture, he saw with growing fright that his feet and pajama bottoms were brown with caked mud. For the moment, his recollections were hopelessly hazy, but he knew, at least, that he must have been sleepwalking. Elwood had been lost, too, deeply in slumber to hear him- Yeah. Elwood had been too- Elwood had been lost, too, deeply in slumber to hear and stop him. On the floor were confused, muddy footprints. But oddly enough, they did not extend all the way to the door. The more Gilman looked at them, the more peculiar they seemed. For in addition to those he could recognize as his, there were some smaller, almost round markings, such as the legs of a large chair or table might make, except that most of them tended to be divided into two halves. There were also some curious muddy rat tracks leading out of the fresh hole and back into it again. Utter bewilderment and the fear of madness racked Gilman as he staggered to the door and saw there were no muddy prints outside. The more he remembered of his hideous dream, the more terrified he felt, and it added to his desperation to hear Joe Masowitz chanting mournfully two floors below. Descending to Elwood's room, he roused his still-sleeping host and began telling of how he had found himself, but Elwood could form no idea of what might have really happened. Where, where Gilman could have been, how he got back to his room without making tracks in the hall, and how the muddy furniture-like prints came to be mixed with his in the garret chamber, were wholly beyond conjecture. No, no, it isn't. It isn't. It's, it's, you're sleepwalking. It's, it's literally the, the answer right there. You are sleepwalking. Don't know what else to tell you, buddy. Yeah, you, you even have the... The evidence of your pants being muddy. Yeah. The real horror is that he has to do laundry now. And he doesn't have a washer dryer in his apartment. It does. <sighs> then there were those dark, livid marks on his throat, as if he had tried to strangle himself. He put his hands up to them, but found that they did not even approximately fit. While they were talking, Dishroches dropped in to say that he had heard a terrific clattering overhead in the dark small hours. No, there had been no one on the stairs after midnight, though just before midnight he had heard faint footfalls in the garret, and cautiously descending steps he did not like. It was, he added, a very bad time of year for Arkham. The young gentleman had better be sure to wear the crucifix Joe Mazarich had given him. Even the, even the daytime was not safe, for after dawn there had been strange sounds in the house, especially a thin, childish wail hastily choked off. Gilman mechanically attended classes that morning, but was wholly unable to fix his mind on studies. A mood of hideous apprehension and expectancy had seized him, and he seemed to be awaiting the fall of some annihilating blow. At noon, he lunched at the university spa, picking up a paper from the next seat as he waited for dessert. But he never ate that dessert. 
for an item on the paper's first page left him limp, wild-eyed, and able to only pay his check and stagger back to Elwood's room. Oh no, I'm too scared to eat my dessert. No, <laughs> my moose pie. <laughs> my cannoli. There had been a strange kidnapping the night before on Orin's Gainway, and the two-year-old child of a clawed-like laundry worker named Anastasia Wolbelchko had completely vanished from sight. The mother, it appeared, had feared the event for some time, but the reasons she assigned for her fear were so grotesque that no one took them seriously. She had, she said, seen Brown Jenkin about the place now and then, ever since early in March. I knew from its grimaces and titterings that little Lancelot must be marked for sacrifice at the awful Sabbath on Walpurgis night. She had asked her neighbor Mary Sanzik to sleep in the room and try to protect the child, but Mary had not dared. She could not tell the police, for they never believed such things. Children had been taken that way every year since she could remember, and her, and her friend Pete Stowacki could not help because he wanted the child out of the way anyhow. What a dick! Oh, okay. <laughs> what an asshole! I'm gonna be an asshole because, I don't know, I literally wanted to do this in the first place. Yeah! Jeez! Like, this kid's, like, two years old! Okay, fine. Oh, hold up, one sec, I gotta stand up real quick. That's bad. But what threw Gilman into the cold perspiration was the report of a pair of revelers who had been walking past the mouth of the gangway just after midnight. They admitted they had been drunk, but both vowed they had seen a crazily dressed trio furtively entering the dark passageway. There had been, they said, a huge robed African man and a little old woman in rags, and a young white man in his nightclothes. The old woman had been dragging the youth while around the feet of the African man. To tame a rat was rubbing and weaving around the brown mud. Gilman sat in a daze all the afternoon, and Elwood, who had Meanwhile, seeing the papers and formed terrible conjectures from them, found him thus when he came home. This time neither could doubt but that something hideously serious was closing in around them. Between the phantasms of nightmare and the realities of the objective world and a monstrous and unthinkable relationship was crystallizing, and only stupendous vigilance could avert such direful developments. Gilman must see a specialist sooner or later, but not just now, when all the papers were full of this kidnapping business. Just what had really happened was maddeningly obscure, and for a moment both Gilman and Elwood exchanged whispered theories of the wildest kind. Had Gilman unconsciously succeeded better than he knew in his studies of space and its dimensions? Had he actually slipped outside our sphere to points unguessed and unimaginable? Where, if anywhere, had he been on those nights of demonic alienage, the roaring twilight abysses, the green hillside, the blistering terrace, the poles from the stars, the ultimate black vortex, the black man, the muddy alley and the stairs, the old witch and the fanged furry horror, the bubble congeries and the, lily po and the little polyhedron, the strange sunburn, the wrist wound, the unexplained image, the muddy feet, the throat marks, the tales and fears of the superstitious foreigners. What did all this mean? To what extent could the laws of sanity apply to such a case? 
There was no sleep for either of them that night, but next day they both cut classes and drowsed. This was April 30th, and with the dusk would come the hellish Sabbath time, which all the foreigners and superstitious old folk feared. Mazarich came home at six o'clock and said people at the mill were whispering that Walpurgis revels would be held in the dark ravine beyond Meadow Hill, where old white stone stands in place queerly void of all plant life. Some of them had even told the police and advised them to look there for the missing Wajelko child, but they could not believe anything would be done. Joe insisted that the poor young gentleman wear his nickel-chained crucifix, and Gilman put it on and dropped it inside his shirt to humor the fellow. Ah, it hurts. I'm a vampire now. <laughs> ah. Plot twist. <laughs> <laughs> That would be wild, honestly. <laughs> honestly, it would make more sense than what's been going on so far. Like, this guy's just a, a sleepwalking and inhaling mold. That's all that's happening. Yeah, yeah. it's just a typical, you should really uh, keep your house maintenance, especially if someone is living in your house that is a tenant, uh, on, like, the forefront of your mind. Get that mold mitigation done. Don't waste your time. Late at night, the two youths sat drowsing in their chairs, lulled by the rhythmical praying of the loom fixer on the floor below. Gilman, instead, as he nodded his prenatally sharpened hearing, seemed to strain some subtle dreaded murmur beyond the noises in the ancient house. Unwholesome recollection of things in the Nepragomicon and the Black Book welled up, and he found himself swaying to emphatic rhythms said to pertain to the blackest ceremonies of the Sabbath and to have some origin outside time and space he could comprehend. Presently, he realized that he was listening for the hellish chant of celebrants in the distant back alley. How did he know so much about what they expected? How did he know time when Nahab and her acolyte were due to bear the brimming bull, which would follow the black cock and the black goat? He saw that Elwood had dropped asleep and tried to call out to waken him. Something, however, closed his throat. He was not his own master. He had signed, had he signed the black man's book after all? Then his fevered, abnormal hearing caught the distant, wind-borne notes. Over miles of hill and field and alley they came, but he recognized them nonetheless. The fires must be lit and the dancers must be starting in. How could he keep himself from going? What was it that had enmeshed him? Mathematics, folklore, the house, old Keziah, brown Jenkin. And now he saw there was a fresh rat hole in the wall near his couch. I want to just give him another option. Mold. Oh. <laughs> just mold. Yeah, it was mold. That's what happened. It was mold. Get, yep, you're, you're breathing in mold. Uh, just a lot of it. Yep. Too much. Above the distant chanting and the nearer praying of Joe Mazowitz came another sound, a stealthy, determined scratching from the partitions. He hoped that the electric lights would not go out. Then he saw the fang-bearded little face in the rat hole, the accursed little face which he at least realized such shocking, mocking resemblance to old Kaziah's, and heard the faint fumbling at the door. The screaming twilight abysses flashed before him and he felt himself helpless in the formless grasp of the iridescent bubble congeries. Ahead raced the small kaleidoscopic polyhedron, and all through the churning void there was a heightened 
There was a heightening and acceleration of the vague tonal pattern, which seemed to foreshadow some unutterable and unendurable climax. He seemed to know what was coming. The monstrous burst of Walpurgis rhythm in those cosmic timber and would be be concentrated all the primal ultimate space-time seethings which lie behind the mass spheres of matter and sometimes break forth in measured reverberations that penetrate faintly to every layer of entity and give hideous significance throughout the world to pertain dreaded periods. Okay, I thought Old Keziah was the mass of bubbles and Brown Jenkin was the polyhedron. So I'm glad I was right. Oh. What do you think you would look like in the dream world? Uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't even, like, okay, I think what I would be is, um, hmm, that's a good question. I can't, I don't know. I think I would be, uh, I think I would be like a, like a slime. And I would. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. Like, considering like your tastes. <laughs> yeah, I would just be, I'd just be like a pile of, of slime and I'll have little eyes and a mouth. Oh, and I'll be I like, love hey, it. What's up? That's. <laughs> That's good. I'd want to be like one of the angels from Evangelion. I want to be a screaming dodecahedron, dodecahedron, just screaming, just you know, because it's it's it. Listen, it just seems right. <laughs> It'd be funny if you saw these fantastic shapes and like people turning into them in like this formless void, and then you show up and you're just a guy. Yeah, you're just like some <laughs> like some <if> dude. <laughs> You're just like like stock standard dude. <laughs> You're just like Craig from accounting. <laughs> but all this vanished in a second. He was again in the cramped violet Litton's peak space in the slanting floor. The low cases of ancient books, the bench and table, the queer objects in the triangular gulf at one side. On the table lay a small white figure, an infant boy, clothed and unconscious. While on the other side stood a monstrous, stood the monstrous leering old woman with gleaming grotesque half knife in her right hand, and a queerly proportioned pale metal bowl covered with curiously chased designs and having delicate lateral handles on her left, she was intoning some croaking ritual in a language which Gilman could not understand, but which seemed like something guardedly noted in the Necronomicon. As the scene grew clear, he saw the ancient crone bend forward and extend the empty bowl across the table. And unable to control his own motions, he reached far forward and took it in both hands, noticing he did so comparatively light with comparative lightness. At the same moment, the disgusting form of Brown Jenkins scrambled up over the brink of the triangular black gulf on his left. The crone now motioned him to hold the bowl in a certain position while she raised the huge grotesque knife above the small white victim, as high as her right hand could reach. The fanged furry furry thing began tittering a continuation of the unknown ritual, while the witch croaked loathsome responses. Gilman felt a gnawing, poignant uh, abhorrence shoot through his mental and and emotional paralysis, and the light metal bowl shook in his grasp. A second later, the downward motion of the knife broke the spell completely, and he dropped the bowl with resounding bell-like clangor, while his hands darted out to frantically stop the monstrous deed. In an instant, he had edged up the slanting floor, 
around the end of the table and wrench the knife from the old woman's claws, sending it clattering over the brink of the narrow triangular gulf. In another instant, however, matters were reversed, for the murderous claws had locked themselves tightly around his own throat, while the wrinkled face was twisted with insane fury. He felt the chain of the cheap crucifix grinding into his neck, and in his peril wondered how the sight of the object itself would affect the evil creature. Her strength was altogether superhuman, but as she continued her choking, he reached feebly into his shirt and drew out the metal symbol, snapping the chain and pulling it free. At the sight of the device, the witch seemed struck with panic, and her grip relaxed long enough to give Gilman a chance to break it entirely. He pulled the steel-like claws from his neck and would have dragged the beldame over the edge of the gulf had not the claws received a fresh access of strength and closed in again. This time, he resolved to reply in kind, and his own hands reached out for the creature's throat. Before he saw what he was doing, he had a chain of the crucifix twined around her neck, and in a moment later, he had tightened enough to cut off her breath. During her last struggle, he felt something bite at his ankle. With one savage kick, he sent the morbidity over the edge of the gulf and heard it whimper on some level far below. Whether he had killed the ancient crone, he did not know, but he let her rest on the floor where she had fallen. Then, as he turned away, he saw on the table a sight which nearly snapped the last thread of his reason. Brown Jenkin, puff of sinew, with four tiny hands of demonic dexterity, had been busy while the witch was throttling him, and his efforts had been in vain. He had prevented the knife from doing the victim's chest. The yellow fangs of furry blasphemy had done to a wrist, and the bowl so lately on the floor stood full beside the small, helpless body. In his dream delirium, Gilman heard the hellish alien rhythm chant of the Sabbat coming from an infinite distance, and knew the black man must be here. Confused memories mixed themselves with his mathematics, and he believed his subconscious mind held angles which he needed to guide him back to the normal world, alone and unaided for the first time. He felt sure he was in the immemorially sealed loft above his own room, but whether he could ever escape through the slanting floor or the long-stopped egress, he doubted greatly. Besides, he would not escape from a dream loft bring him merely to a dream house, an abnormal projection of the actual place he sought. He was wholly bewildered to the realization betwixt dream and reality in all his experiences. The passage through the vague abysses would be frightful, while the Walpurgis rhythm would be vibrating, and at last he would have to hear hitherto veiled cosmic pulsing, which he so mortally dreaded. Even now he could detect a low, monstrous shaking, whose tempo he suspected all too well. At Sabbath time, it always mounted and reached through the worlds to summon the initiate to nameless rites. Half the chants of the Sabbath were patterned on his faintly overhood pulsing, which no earthly ear could endure in its unveiled spatial fullness. Gilman wondered, too, whether he could trust his instinct to take him back to the right part of the planet on the tessellated terrace above the city of tentacled monsters somewhere beyond the galaxy, or in the spiral black vortices of that ultimate void of chaos, wherein reigns the mindless daemon sultan Azathoth. Just before he made the plunge, the violet light went out and left him in utter blackness. The witch, old Keziah, Nahab, must have meant her death, and mixed with the distant chant of the sabbat 
and whimpers of brown Jenkin. In the gulf below, he thought he heard another wilder whine from unknown depths. Joe Masrich, the prayers again, the crawling chaos now turning to an inexplicable triumphant shriek, worlds of sardonic actuality impinging on vortices of febrile dream. Yab, shove the goat with a thousand young. They found Gilman on the floor of his queerly angled old garret room, long before dawn, for the terrible cry had brought Disrochers and Choinsky and Dabrowski and Mazowitz at once, and had even wakened the soundly sleeping Elwood in his chair. He was alive, and with open staring eyes, but seemed largely unconscious. On his throat were the marks of murderous hands, and on his left ankle was a distressing rat bite. His clothing was badly rumpled, and Joe's crucifix was missing. Elwood trembled, afraid to even speculate on what new form his friend's sleepwalking had taken. Masowitz seemed half-dazed because of a sign he said he had in response to his prayers, and he crossed himself frantically when the squealing and whimpering of a rat sounded from beyond the slanting partition. When the dreamer was settled on his couch in Elwood's room, they sent for Dr. Malowski a local practitioner who had repeat, who would repeat no tales where they might prove embarrassing, and he gave Gilman two hypodermic injections, which caused him to relax in something like natural drowsiness. During the day, the patient regained consciousness at times. It whispered his newest dream disjointedly to Elwood. It was a painful process, and its very start brought out a fresh and disconcerting fact. Gilman, whose ears so lately possessed an abnormal sensitiveness, was now stone deaf. Dr. Malowski, summoned again in haste, told Elwood that both beyond all human conception or endure- oh, what? that both eardrums were ruptured, as if by the impact of some stupendous sound intense beyond all human conception or endurance. How such a sound could have been heard in the last few hours without arousing the Biscatonic Valley more than the honest physician could say. Elwood wrote part of his colloquy on paper so that a fairly easily communication was maintained. Neither knew what to make of the whole chaotic business, and decided it would be better if they thought as little as possible about it. Both, though, agreed that they must leave this ancient and accursed house as soon as it could be arranged. Well, no fucking duh! <laughs> oh my god. This you kinda... should have done that at the beginning! <laughs> God, my guy, a brother in Christ, <laughs> man, it's, how, you know, even if he could think you of it, just think? talk to someone else about it. Oh my God. Ugh. Also, can you heal from burst eardrums? I think you can. I, uh, well, we can find out. Oh, apparently it's common. Okay. Yes, it, you can, it can be fixed. It doesn't sound pleasant, but it can be fixed. They either have to give you antibiotics or they have to cauterize it. Yeah. Oh god, I thought a bug just climbed onto me. It's a piece of fuzz. Oh. Evening paper spoke of a police raid on some curious revelers in a ravine beyond Meadow Hill just before dawn. It mentioned that a white stone was an object of age-long superstitious regard. Nobody had been caught, but among the scattered fugitives had been glimpsed a huge black man. In another column, it was stated that no trace of the missing Lassislaus Welko had been found. With a crowning horror came that very night. Elwood will never forget it. 
and was forced to stay out of college for the rest of the term because of the resulting nervous breakdown. He thought he heard rats in the partitions all the evening, but paid little attention to them. Then, long after both he and Gilman had retired, the atrocious shrieking began. Elwood jumped up, turned on the lights, and rushed over to his guest's couch. The occupant was emitting sounds of veritably inhuman nature, as if racked by some torment beyond description. He was writhing under the bedclothes, and a great red stain was beginning to appear on the blankets. Elwood scarcely dared to touch him, but gradually the screaming and writhing subsided. By this time, Dabrowski, Choinsky, DeRochers, Mazerwitz, and the top-floor lodgers were all crowding into the doorway, and the landlord had sent his wife to back to telephone for Dr. Malowski. Everybody shrieked when a large rat-like form suddenly jumped out from beneath the ensanguined bedclothes and scuttled across the floor to a fresh open hole close by. When the doctor arrived and began to pull down those frightful covers, Walter Gilman was dead. It would be barbarous to do more than suggest what had killed Gilman. There had been virtually a tunnel through his body. Something had eaten his heart out. Dombrowski, frantic at the failure of his constant rat poisoning efforts, cast aside all thought of his lease within a week and had moved with all his lodgers to a dingy but less ancient house in Walnut Street. The worst thing for a while was keeping Joe Masaryk quiet, for the brooding loon fixer would never stay sober and was constantly whining and muttering about spectral and terrible things. Okay. Okay. I think I know another thing that might be happening. Uh, the, the rat poisoning, he's probably doing it wrong, and he's probably eating it. But it's small <laughs> amounts. <laughs> this is how this works, right? You eat it. Yeah, like, it bites me at night, so if I eat enough of it, it will... The, the, the rat stands no chance. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Oh my, Walter, please. <laughs> it seemed that on that last hideous night, Joe had stooped to look at the crimson rat tracks, which led from Gilman's house to the nearby, or Gilman's couch to the nearby hole. On the carpet, they were indistinct, but a piece of open flooring intervened between the carpet's edge and the baseboard, where Masaryk found something monstrous, or thought he had. For no one else around him could quite agree with him, despite the undeniable queerness of the prince. The tracks on the flooring were certainly vastly unlike the average prince of a rat. But even Choitsky and DeRochers could not admit that they were like prints of four tiny human hands. The house was never rented again. As soon as Dombrowski left it, the pall of its final desolation began to descend. For people shunned it both on account of its old reputation because of the new fetid odor. Perhaps the ex-landlord's rat poisoning had worked after all, for not long after his departure, the place became a neighborhood nuisance. Health officials traced the smell to the closed spaces above and beside the eastern garret room, and agreed that the number of dead rats must be enormous. Oh, that's right, they left Kazaya's dead body up there. <laughs> oh, yeah! Oh, yeah, that probably smells real bad. <laughs> Oh, oh, that's probably disgusting. Yeah, it's probably not great. <sighs> they decided, however, it was not worth their while to hew open and disinfect the long sealed spaces, for the fetter would soon be over. 
and the locality was not one which encouraged fastidious standards. Indeed, there were always vague local tales of unexplained stenches upstairs in the witch house, just after May Eve and Holomus. The neighbors grumbling... Neighbors grumblingly acquiesced in the inertia, but the fetter nonetheless formed an additional count against the place. Toward the last, the house was condemned as an habitation by the building inspector. Gilman's dreams and their attendant circumstances have never been explained. Elwood, whose thoughts on the entire episode were sometimes almost maddening, came back to college the next autumn and graduated in the following June. He found the spectral gossip of the town much diminished, and it is indeed a fact that, notwithstanding certain reports of ghostly tittering in the deserted house, which lasted almost as long as the edifice itself, no fresh appearances either of old Keziah or Brown Jenkin had been muttered of, of since Gilman's death. It is rather fortunate that Elwood was not in Arkham in that later year, when certain events abruptly renewed the old whispers about elder horrors. Of course, he heard about the matter afterward and suffered untold torments of black and bewildered speculation. But even that was not as bad as the actual nearness and several possible sightings which sites would have been. In March 1931, a gale wrecked the roof of Wrecked the roof and great chimney of the vacant witch house, so that a chaos of crumbling bricks, blackened moss-grown shingles, and rotting planks and timbers crashed down into the loft and broke through the floor beneath. The whole attic story was choked with debris from above, and no one took to troubled, the trouble to touch the mess before inevitable raising of the decrepit structure. That ultimate step came in f the following December, and it was when Gilman's old room was cleared out by reluctant, apprehensive workmen that the gossip began. Among the rubbish which had crashed through the ancient slanting ceiling were several things which made the workmen pause and call the police. Later, the police would in turn call the coroner and several professors from the university. There were bones, badly crushed and splintered, but clearly recognizable as human, whose manifestly modern date conflicted puzzlingly with the remote period at which their only possible lurking place, the low slant-floored loft overhead, had supposedly been sealed from all human access. The coroner's physician decided that some belonged to a small child, while certain others found mixed with shreds of rotten brownish cloth belonged to a rather undersized, bent female of advanced years. Careful sifting of debris also disclosed many tiny bones of rats caught in the collapse, as well as older rat bones gnawed by small fangs in a fashion now and then highly productive of controversy and reflection. Other objects found included the mingled fragments of many books and papers, together with a yellowish dust left from the total disintegration of still older books and papers. All without exception appeared to deal with black magic in its most advanced and horrible forms, and the evidently recent date of certain items is still a mystery as unsolved as that of the modern human bones. An even greater mystery is the absolute homogeny of the crabbed, archaic writing found on a wide range of papers whose conditions and watermarks suggested age differences of at least 150 to 200 years. 
To some, though, the greatest mystery of all is the variety of utterly inexplicable objects. Objects whose shapes, materials, types of workmanship, and purposes baffled all conjecture. Found scattered amidst the wreckage, and evidently diverse states of injury. One of these things, which excited several Miskatonic professors profoundly, is a badly damaged monstrosity, plainly resembling the strange image which Gilman gave to the College Museum, save that it was larger, wrought of some peculiar bluish stone instead of metal, and possessed a singularly angled pedestal with indecipherable hieroglyphs. Archaeologists and anthropologists are still trying to explain the bizarre designs chased on a crushed bowl of light metal, whose inner side bore ominous brownish stains when found. Foreigners' incredulous grandmothers are equally garrulous about the modern nickel crucifix with broken chain, mixed in the rubbish, and shiveringly identified by Joe Masowich as that which had been given to poor Gilman many years before. Some believe this crucifix was dragged up to the sealed loft by rats, while others think it was it must have been on the floor in some corner of Gilman's old room at the time. Still others, including Joe himself, have theories too wild and fantastic for sober credence. When the slanting wall of Gilman's room was torn out, the once sealed triangular space between that partition and the house's north wall was found to contain much less spectral degree. Even in proportion to its size, the room itself, oh, the room itself, though it had a ghastly layer of old materials which paralyzed the workers with horror. In brief, the floor was veritably, was a veritable ossuary of bones of small children. Some fairly modern, but others extending back in infinite gradations to a period so remote that crumbling was almost complete. On this deep bony layer rested a knife of great size, obvious antiquity and grotesque, ornate, and exotic design, above which the debris was piled. In the midst of this debris, wedged between a fallen plank and a cluster of cement bricks from the ruined chimney, was an object destined to cause more bafflement. Veiled fright and openly superstitious talk in Arkham than anything else discovered in the haunted and accursed building. This object was the partly crushed skeleton of a huge, diseased rat, whose abnormalities of form were still a topic of debate and source of singular reticence among the members of Miskatonic's Department of Comparative Anatomy. Very little concerning the skeleton was leaked out, but the workmen who found it whisper in shocked tones about the long brownish hairs with which it was associated. The bones of the tiny paws, it is rumored, imply prehensile characteristics, more typical of a diminutive monkey than of a rat. While the small skull, with its savage yellow fangs, is of utmost anomalousness, appearing from certain angles like a miniature, monstrously degraded parody of a human skull. The workmen crossed themselves in fright when they came upon this blasphemy, but later burned candles of gratitude at St. Stanislaus Church because of the shrill, ghostly tittering they felt they would never hear again. The end. Okay. Rip Walter Gilman, you dumb bitch. I, I guess. I don't know. You, sh you should have just moved out of the house. You should have just left. Yep. I, I don't, like, why didn't he just leave? 
Yeah, I don't get why he didn't just leave. <laughs> I would have just left. I would be like, "Fuck this, I'm leaving." <laughs> yeah, I just don't. I don't. I don't have much to say besides. <laughs> I only have one thought, which was like, I do find it interesting that the places in the dream world seem to have like a physical counterpart in the real world which i kind of liked in unknown the quest for unknown kadath where he talked about like yeah sure some of these things here do have like a physical counterpart in the real world yeah which that's fine i think it's kind of cool some places not all places though yeah yeah like that's cool i guess but also like it could have been presented like yeah this was uh this could have been better written. <laughs> What's the next one? The next one is the silver key. Uh, is that one known to be good? Um, it's another Randolph Carter one. Hmm, it's probably. And I love, I love our boy Randolph Carter. Yeah, I love gonna... him. Yeah. Oh. And this, and it's that one's actually broken into chapters. That has some interesting ideas. Just unfortunately, we're not executed in a great way yeah it you know i have a feeling it's probably gonna be uh more interesting uh as like a visual thing yes definitely and i feel like it could be paced better that way too which uh we have nine days until we can watch watch it i guess yep i'm ready i can't wait for that and pikmin's model Yep, yep, Which yep. I know is going to be good because it's pick. Also, Ben Barnes is in it. Uh, yeah. The guy that. Yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited. <sighs> yeah. <sighs> All right. Shall we? Shall we? HP Listcraft this this one. Yeah. Let's do it. Um. A listomania. Think less, but see it grow. Okay. So once you have it open. I have it open. Oh, you're an anonymous dolphin this time. Ew, I hate dolphins. <laughs> Where? Okay. Uh, okay, I'm going down. Yeah. So, I don't even remember what in the vault is. Do you remember? Uh, that was the one with the guy. He's the Undertaker. Who... Oh, oh no, no. Okay, no, I have a fondness <laughs> for that one. So below <laughs> <Yeah>. that one. <laughs> uh, Mostly the... for his horse. <laughs> Okay, the zero help. (laughs) The moon bog. No, it's worse than that. I'm thinking it's the doom that came to Sanoth. Sanoth. Sarnoth. That one has some interesting stuff going on it with it. Mm -hmm. The tomb has some interesting stuff. The very old folk. I don't remember the very old folk. What was the very old folk? I don't remember it either. The Uh, terrible old man. we can, let's put it up. No? Uh, so the very old folk did give me a bad impression. That's the thing. Yeah. Didn't give me a good impression. Terrible old man was just, you know, eh. Eh. The alchemist had some funness to it. Some. Not a lot, but some. Yeah, Charles Le Sorcier, wizard extraordinaire. Yeah. Uh, let's put it below the alchemist. Okay. That sounds good to me. Above the beast in the cave. So firmly in the bottom ten. Woo! <laughs> uh, the dreams in the witch house. 
All right. So this is okay. I'll, this is the bottom 10. We got The Alchemist at number 50, Dreams in the Witch House at 51, The Beast in a Cave at 52, The Shunned House at 53, The Facts Concerning Arthur Tremaine and His Family at 54, A Reminiscence of Dr. Samuel Johnson at 55, Ibid at 56, Key at 57, The Transition of Juan Romero at 58, Horror at Red Hook at 59, 60 is Old Bugs, The Street is at 61, and Under the Pyramids is at the very bottom at 62. So, yep. Not a great one. Over in space, remember, you are an irreplaceable gash in the fabric of reality. Your keening static howl is like no other. And if it faded from the abyss, the void that would remain would be unfillable. And the mansions of silence would forever fill with our lament. Okay, bye! 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 <laughs>